Hey, everybody. Welcome to the New Deal Podcast, episode number five. I'm your host, Jerry Nutini, and I appreciate you guys taking the time to listen. If you are further interested in my rantings and ravings, please don't forget to check out the New Deal blog at thenewdeal.com. All episodes of this podcast are also available at thenewdeal.com, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the Podbean mobile app for iOS and Android. We have a lot to unpack this week. Uh, We're going to be talking about the shooting of Rashard Brooks by the Atlanta police. We're going to look at tasers and how law enforcement utilized them. We're going to break down my position on the shooting. And then we're going to talk about the proposed Rhode Island state name change um, that was put forth by the Rhode Island Senate that can be going to ballot this November. Um, We're also going to be briefly touching on the Republicans' law enforcement reform bill, Donald Trump's executive order on the same issue, and finally, genetically modified mosquitoes, because... There's genetically modified mosquitoes, and we need to talk about them because they're coming to a place near you, more than likely. Anyway, let's get right into it. So on on June 12, 2020, at a Wendy's drive-thru in Atlanta, a 27-year-old by the name of Richard Brooks was shot and killed by the Atlanta Police Department. Um, I'm going to go over a brief timeline of events. As always, there will be a list of resources and links for you guys to click on, you know, linked here with the episode. These are things that I use as resources and research to go over so that you guys can see what I'm looking at. I mean, some of it's just really good information to review. So there's a really great video from NBC News that gives a full rundown from all five camera angles that were available on the scene. It syncs them all up and provides a great time lapse of the entire event. I suggest you check that out. It will be linked below. So just a brief timeline, uh, very abbreviated here. So police were called. A vehicle was reported stopped in the Wendy's drive-thru. Other cars were having to go around it. Devin Brosnan was the first officer on the scene. The timestamp of his body cam indicates that he arrived at around 10.41 p.m. He asked Mr. Brooks to take his car and pull it into an empty parking lot spot, and Brooks complied. Brosnan checked his license, and a few minutes later, uh, he called in for support. Uh, Second officer, Garrett Rolfe, arrove on the scene at 22.56, or 10.56 p.m. A sobriety test was conducted. Um, Mr. Brooks consented to the sobriety test. Officer Rolf conducted the test. It took about seven minutes, and that started right around 11 o'clock. Mr. Brooks appeared relaxed this entire time when he was in the car, when he pulled in the spot during the sobriety test. He did uh, end up blowing over the legal limit, which is 0.08 in Georgia. I believe he was uh, at 1.0, right right in that range, um, over the legal limit, considered intoxicated. So Officer Rolf began to handcuff Mr. Brooks, and a struggle ensued. This was at about 11.23 p.m., and it was at that time the body cameras that were worn by the police fell to the ground as the struggle broke out. So to start, you know, around 10.40 p.m., everything is fine, right through the sobriety test, right to the time that handcuffs are being placed on Mr. Brooks, again, at about 11.20. So, So roughly 40 minutes elapsed where Mr. Brooks is entirely compliant. No cause for concern on anyone's part. So a struggle ensues. The second the handcuff touched him, he began to resist. He was wrestled to the ground by both officers. Um, Officer Brosnan is alleged to have put his knee on Mr. Brooks' shoulder, and that has resulted in an assault charge at Mr. Brosnan. So they're on the ground. He's got his knee on his shoulder, and clearly Mr. Brooks is pretty strong because these two officers are having trouble apprehending him. At one point, Devin Brosnan, the first officer on the scene, pulls his taser out and and alerts Mr. Brooks that he's going to be tased. Mr. Brooks grabs the taser. 
And both officers try to grab his arm and take the taser away, but they're unable to do so. Brooks is able to wrestle free. Uh, I believe he throws a punch at Officer Rolf, and he's still got the taser, and he begins running away from the officers. So as he, so, so he's running. Um, it looks like maybe 30, 40 feet. Officer Rolf is in pursuit. Mr. Brosnan's slower to get up. And after a few seconds, Mr. Brooks turns around and fires the taser at Officer Rolf. Uh, there's about 18 feet between the two of them. At that point, Officer Rolf transitions from his taser in his right hand, moves to his pistol, and he shoots Mr. Brooks twice in the back. Three shots total were fired. The third bullet ended up in the vehicle of, of, of an SUV that was in the drive through lane. And, and so th- those were three shots, two to the back of Mr. Brooks, one in the vehicle of uh, someone in the drive through. That's our time lapse. There was there's a lot of debate about the shooting. My position will be it's, it's pretty clear. And, and I'm going to I'm going to get to that. The resulting charges. Garrett Rolf has been charged with 11 charges, including murder, and he faces up to life in prison. Devin Brosnan, the first officer, is facing three charges, including aggravated assault, and he's facing one to 20 years in prison. The chief of police in Atlanta resigned, um, saying that the actions of the police officers were unjustified, and there's been an interim police chief put in place there. Just some background on the officers, um, at least the one who who shot Garrett Rolfe. He received over 2,000 hours of training. He's been an officer since 2013. In the six years he's been an officer, he's had 11 complaints filed against him, three of which have required discipline. He's also discharged his weapon once before. Both of those officers have turned themselves in on those charges, and so neither of them is resisting arrest or resisting these charges. Some key things to note. First of all, I think this shooting was unjustified, Um, but I want to go over some of the stats, the numbers first, before I get into my complete amateur analysis. Again, Brooks was about 18 feet away from the officer at the time he discharged the taser. The prosecution also argues that the officer, Rolf, knew that the taser was not functional after that point. The other thing is, is there was, and and this was my own timing, and feel free, free to take out your own phone and time it yourself in the video, but from the time that Brooks fires the taser to the time that Rolf shoots his first shot, 1.53 seconds elapses. And while that seems like an extremely short amount of time, if you run your, you know, your stopwatch for a minute, you know, for 1.53 seconds, it's a long time to process what's happened. I believe it's enough time to process that the taser did not hit you that you were not hit by the taser and you are not at risk of being incapacitated. Um, and I'll bring that up again later. Donald Trump commented on this and he said, you can't resist a police officer. If you have a disagreement, you have to take it up after the fact. Um, this is what he told Sean Hannity on Fox News. It was out of control. The whole situation was out of control. And he said that the police have been treated unfairly in the U.S. He said it's up to justice right now. It's going to be up to justice. I hope he, the officer Rolf, gets a fair shake because police has not been treated fairly in our country. But again, you can't resist a police officer like that. And it's not okay to address that police officers haven't been treated fairly in our country, even though they're extremely well-funded, and they're very rarely brought to justice for their wrongdoings, when the black community seems to very rarely be given justice by the same justice system that affords police such leniency. So Donald Trump, in typical Donald Trump fashion, um, is taking the wrong side and making it very clear. He's not even pretending to take both sides. So this is what is problematic with the leadership in our country right now. 
you you cannot say that white supremacists are fine people when protesters are being killed by those same white supremacists, like we saw in Charlottesville. And you cannot say that police officers are being not being treated fairly when black people for 400 years in this country have not been treated fairly. Tyler Perry has offered to pay for the funeral on Tuesday, June 24th, which is coming up. I just wanted to note that because I felt like that was, you know, a, a very nice gesture by someone who has the means to provide such services. So, um, again, Tyler Perry has offered to pay for the funeral. So a few things that have struck me here. We have Officer Brosnan bringing out his taser. We have Officer Brosnan losing control of his taser. We have the actual shooting itself. So I want to focus on tasers for a minute here because I didn't know a lot about tasers. And I feel like there's some important stats to be brought up about tasers. So first, tasers are less reliable than they're believed to be and less reliable than advertised. A study done, I believe in 2016, found that the effectiveness rate of tasers is actually quite low. They're advertised at, you know, originally, you know, 90 to 95%. I think the official advertised effectiveness of the tasers has been said now between 80 and 90%. But here are what certain police departments have reported as the effectiveness rate. Atlanta reported a 67.8 effectiveness rate. Um, Columbus, Ohio, 77.3%. Dallas, 68%. Fort Worth, Texas, 62.4%. Indianapolis, 54.7%. LA, 57.1%. Seattle, 60.6%. So clearly not living up to that 80% mark that's advertised. So tasers are not, have not been historically extremely effective tools in doing what they're supposed to do. Here's some things I didn't know about tasers because I don't use tasers and... I don't have access to them and I don't plan on tasing anybody. When a taser is fired, it shoots two darts and those darts must strike a victim ideally about 12 inches apart in order to be effective, in order to establish a a, a current over that distance to incapacitate enough muscle mass to be effective in subduing a suspect. This is not usually accomplished until a range of about nine feet. Some newer tasers are trying to work on this problem, uh, making that more effective at about four feet. They can get that distance to spread out. But you're firing a taser from, you know, you know, from it, from a from a weapon that is compact. Those two bolts come out. They're only inches apart. They, it takes time for them to spread out to the 12 inches. So new models are working on that. But even then, they take at least four feet to become effective to the point where they need to be. Some tasers have a range of up to 35 feet. So there's a question of whether the taser should have been used. It is possible for officers to use the taser at point-blank range. When you press the taser up against a suspect that you're trying to apprehend, it goes into a different mode where it will not incapacitate them, but it will cause them extreme pain. And whether or not this is effective is kind of, you know, out out to jury. I would assume that inflicting extreme pain on a suspect is only going to further enrage them. So I'm not sure if it's effective. A study, on which I'll link, shows that 1 in 12 fatal shootings occurred after a taser failed to incapacitate the suspect. So you've got a police officer who was trying to utilize uh, non-lethal force against a suspect. They use the non-lethal force, and it fails. And because it fails, they then go to lethal force and shoot those people. Another 106 incidents, uh, so there were 258 total incidents, I believe, and then another 106 incidents escalated after a taser failed to subdue a suspect. So basically, tasers can either lead to fatal shootings or they can further escalate a situation when they don't work. So when you have a tool that is working, it looks like, on average, between 60 and 70% of the time, 
That means that one in three times you use the taser is going to result in a less than ideal situation, whether it means that you have to escalate your force as an officer or it escalates the situation period to the point where, you know, you're in a worse off situation than you were just a second before you used the taser. So my stance on this is that I, th I think we need to agree, we need better non-lethal means of defense for police officers. I think in this regard, we're setting them up for failure. We're giving them a tool that in 30 to 40% of cases only serves to further agitate a suspect and it sets those police officers up for failure. I am against putting police in a position where you're telling them, hey, use this non-lethal force so that you don't need to kill somebody because we don't want you to be responsible for the shooting of a suspect. But here's this tool that's going to help to further escalate the situation in up to 40% of cases. That's giving them a resource and then essentially punishing them for using it when it backfires. We need a more effective means of non-lethal force. And I believe it's out there and, you know, I'm not an expert on it, but... I feel like there's a lot we can do. So when it comes to the shooting, there's a few things that we need to look at. I'm going to make some concessions here. I think it's important to make concessions before I get into my own thoughts. I can see that things happen quickly in these situations and that the stakes are high. I can see that. People's lives are on the line and they're adrenaline fueled and I will concede that. I also concede and sympathize with the element of surprise when a suspect who has been compliant for 40 minutes suddenly resists arrest. I can see how that could be confusing and that it comes out of nowhere, and especially if the suspect is strong and it looks like Mr. Brooks was, that that can, when things are surprised it, it, and it catches you off guard, I think, you know, if you're not expecting something, you will react to it less ideally. And I think we clearly saw that happen here. I will also concede that some force, like the use of a taser, may have been appropriate at points in this encounter, although I don't know that I agree with the taser being used as early on as it looks like they were trying to use it. And and, and maybe the situation could have been de-escalated should the taser have not been gone to so early in the encounter. I also concede that Rashard Brooks made a series of bad decisions in this moment, especially if we're choosing not to consider the context. He resisted arrest. It's never a great idea to resist arrest no matter what is personally at stake for you. I can concede that. However, I think the use of a firearm needs to be a last resort. And I mean last resort. I think of it in the simplest terms, which means that as a police officer, it is down to the suspect's life or my own and that there can be no area given for speculation. As in, well, if he does this and then he does this, he could kill me. That's not good enough. That's not good enough. It needs to be down to, he is about to kill me and I have to kill him to save my own life. And it needs to be that clear, especially when there's a second officer on the scene, especially when you have backup. I believe if non-lethal weapons like tasers are in play and there are two officers involved, there should be no lethal force used until at least one officer is incapacitated. That's why there are two officers there. If the first officer was stunned, then yes, the second officer should be able to take action between the incapacitation of the first officer and then the potential death of that first officer. In this situation, we're talking about the officer being tased and then assuming that Mr. Brooks would then grab the gun and shoot that officer, okay? If that actually played out and the first officer went down and then Brooks turned around and went to go get the gun off Rolf, then I think it would have been okay for the second officer to use lethal force. That scenario leaves far less up to assumption. I also believe that cops are obligated to protect the lives of the suspects at all costs. Again, until the life of another civilian or an officer is inevitable. There has to be an inevitability or near inevitability 
where, again, that person's going to die if I don't do something right now. I'm of that. And when I made the choice to join the military, I knew that when I did, I could die. And when cops join the force, they know that they are forfeiting the right to their life and that their own standards or whatever constitutes, you know, for whatever constitutes when force should be used in their opinion, will be superseded by the standard of law. And their training must reflect those lessons. And I'm also going to concede here that I've not been through the police academy and I will try to do more research on their training. But what I might consider a threat to my own life when I join the military or, or I join law enforcement, that goes out the window and the law will dictate when I need to take action. And, and that is what is going to be at stake here in the court case. I don't think it's okay to shoot someone in the back. I think there are very, very rare circumstances where it is justifiable to shoot a person running away in the back unless they are turning around routinely to take shots at you, I don't think it's okay to shoot someone in the back. He had discharged the taser. 1.53 seconds elapsed between the time that he discharged the taser, and in that time, Officer Rolf switched from his taser to his weapon and then fired his weapon. And I have to imagine, again, run this on your stopwatch, I have to imagine in that 1.53 seconds, Officer Rolf must have registered that he, in fact, had not been hit with the taser. And so, so you're running, you're running. I understand it's happening quickly. The taser is shot. You then transition from your taser to your pistol. And before you shoot, don't you think you know whether or not you've been hit with the taser? And if you haven't been hit with the taser... Why is it then okay to shoot? Because the threat to your life has diminished greatly. Your, the threat to be incapacitated has diminished greatly. You now just have a suspect running away from you who does not have the ability to incapacitate you with the taser. So at this point, unless he turns around and charges you, you're, you're really not in much danger at all. And even if he charges you, he'd have to take your weapon away to like really be a threat in, in killing you. And there's an officer behind you to back you up. 1.53 seconds is a long time. NFL quarterbacks get passes off in way less time than 1.53 seconds. Like screen passes happen like in a third of that time. And again, I understand that that's completely different, but we're talking about an adrenaline-fueled situation where someone is running away and you have time to switch weapons and then fire the weapon, but you don't have time apparently to, to, to process that you have not been hit by a taser. I have an issue with that. Brooks was also 18 feet away. And 18 feet is a pretty large distance. When we're talking about the effectiveness of a taser and the accuracy of a taser being fired by an intoxicated individual. And I don't think that we can overlook the fact that Brooks was intoxicated because while intoxicated people do surprising things or unexpected things, I also think you need to acknowledge that the individual's judgment is impaired and they are not thinking clearly. And so you need to weigh that both ways. So, okay, he made a mistake, he took the taser, he ran with the taser, but he's intoxicated, so his accuracy with the taser is probably not going to be great, and he probably isn't thinking clearly. Because he's probably not thinking clearly even if he's sober, but he's not sober. And I do think the officers have a responsibility to make that distinction in those moments and choose not to discharge the weapon, especially after you have the ability to process that, hey, I wasn't hit by the taser, let me take this guy down. And if you can't catch him, I think you let him go. And I've seen people argue, well, you know, what if he got in a car and, you know, then killed people as a drunk driver? And th this guy wasn't 
a murderer who was like on a spree and the cops caught him mid spree. And if he runs away, like he's going to go murder other people. This guy was asleep in his car. That matters. The, the initial crime he committed was that he was sleeping in his car. And then it escalated, partially in part because of Brooks's own actions, but it escalated into a chase on foot. But, but you need to realize that, like, the reason you're after this guy is because he was asleep in his car. Then the reason you're after this guy is because he, he took your taser. And I think the officer is partially at fault for the taser being taken away. He grabbed it with one hand, and then he pressed it up against Mr. Brooks's forearm. He's going to use it point blank. And again, at point blank, the taser does not incapacitate. The, the taser only causes pain. So in this situation, it's being used as a threat to calm down rather, rather than as a tool to de-escalate the situation. Knowing that causing someone pain, usually, I, I don't. it's not my experience that when you hurt somebody, they calm down. I think there are like a million better ways to calm down a situation than to inflict pain upon a person. That's my take on this shooting. You have a guy who's sleeping in his car. He's been compliant for 40 minutes. He's not trying to resist arrest from the start. Obviously, the realization that he's being arrested is extremely surprising to him and poses him some type of threat. He resists. I believe the officer's a little bit careless with his taser. He takes the taser. He's running away with a non-lethal weapon. And I'm sorry. That's, oh, well, it could be fatal or it's a less lethal weapon. This needs to be made clear by law. It needs to be made clear. Either a taser is lethal or it's not lethal. But that gray area, uh-uh, that's not okay. We're not messing around with gray areas when it comes to law enforcement killing black people. No gray areas. It's either lethal or it's not. As far as I know, less lethal or non-lethal, cops, you're taking a chance there and you're not shooting them, okay? Especially when you have backup because the threat to your life is not imminent. You are not in imminent danger of death. That is a fact. I know that in the moment, different things are running through your head, but cops receive training for a reason, just like soldiers receive training for a reason. Cops should not be held to the same standard as a regular Joe like me in that situation. If I freak out and shoot him because, and, and I'm going to plead self-defense, then as a civilian, fine. Cops receive training to de-escalate situations, and they make the choice to join a force, and their lives are at risk, and that is a choice that they have made knowingly. And no officer, you know, should lose their life. I don't think it should come down to an officer saying, well, I'm going to let this violent person kill me. But I do think it needs to get much closer to the point of death being imminent before a shot is fired at someone running away from you. I think that's really important. I think we have an issue in America that is growing. And I think the way that we choose to value human life is deteriorating rapidly. And I think Part of this divide that we see is we've got a group of people on the left or typically left or, or independents, you know, so, somewhere in there on the spectrum who are saying lives are important, life is precious, life is rare, and we need to protect life at all costs. And then we have other people saying, well, you know, some people deserve to die. You know, death is something that people deserve and death is something that people can do to other people. And so what? So what if mass shootings happen? I'm not going to give up my guns. I'm not, I don't care if high school kids are, you know, being mowed down. I'm going to feign that it's upsetting to me. But if you ask me to make a personal concession to save lives, no, I'm not going to do that. Fuck that. People can die for my rights. I don't care. Right? That's the mindset. I genuinely wonder, and I don't think I'm too far off base here, that if 9-11 happened today, I wonder if we'd see the outrage like, I know it's a foreign terrorist attacking America, but like, we've seen hundreds of school kids die 
and the outrage be nowhere close. 2,300 people die when a, when a plane hits a building in New York and the building, like that's a tragic historic event and we reacted properly to it in 2001. But if something like that happened today, I don't know that Americans have the empathy to rally around loss of life and, and form that sense of community and just say loss of life on any level is not okay. I think we're getting away from it and it's a little bit scary. People are willing to throw other people's lives away way too quickly, way too quickly. The taking of a life is the worst thing a human being can do in our lives. There is no greater atrocity than killing another human being. It is the absolute worst action as a human being on this earth in our existence that we can commit. Whether our intention is good or in self-preservation or completely evil, it does not change the fact that that is the worst act a human being can commit. It doesn't get heavier. There is no greater consequence. So we need to realize that when we're talking about these situations. I just think we dismiss death too easily. And cops are not judge and jury. And I think the majority of cops will tell you they're not judge and jury. But being in fear of one's life does not equate to an immediate threat to life. Being afraid does not mean the threat exists. And trained officers should be able to make that distinction because they need to be better than your average Joe with a gun. I believe police need to change their mentality from an obedience authority to a support authority. You are not there to make people obedient. You are there to support people. You are there to support your communities. And you need to have as much interest in helping people as you seem to have in arresting people. Arresting people shouldn't be a pleasure. You know, arresting people should be one of those things that like you don't like doing about the job that you have to do because it's part of the job. Being a cop is not about playing cops and robbers. These are real lives at stake. And it's not a replacement for a battle zone either. So for all the ex-military looking to like continue like their battlefield, like, you know, to, 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 to serve that need that they have, you shouldn't be in law enforcement if that's what you're looking for, in my opinion. And all this is my opinion. So I, I, I just need to make that very, very clear. The, the, the courts will decide the fate of an individual in the eyes of the law and you know, whatever creator or non-creator you choose or choose not to believe in. But it's not the cop to pass the death sentence on the street. This is not the wild, wild west. And we are not a third world country. So we need to hold ourselves to a higher standard. And we need to, you know, we need to acknowledge as a nation that civility still matters. And, and, and the fact that this, the fact that this occurred in the midst of these Black Lives Matter protests, in, in the shadow of the George Floyd incident is astonishing because you'd think that these officers would exercise even more restraint. And, and, and again, for 40 minutes, it looks like this was fine. But what, what, what we expect of our police officers, what we expect our taxpayer dollars in, you know, to go to is the training that when the situation escalates, loss of life is not so easily on the table not so quickly on the table. And if we need to invest in more training for police to be able to identify those situations and better assess their situations, then, then yes, let's do that. Let's take some of that money from the military equipment that we talked about last week being transferred to police stations. Let's use that money instead of buying, you know, 
tanks and military-grade equipment. Let's use that money to train officers on, you know, how to not kill people so easily, especially black people. I know many people don't think this is as clear-cut as the George Floyd case, but this case is exactly what people refer to when they say that this has been going on way too long. I don't think a white man would have been shot there. I don't think a white man would have been shot running away 18 feet away after discharging a non-lethal weapon at a police officer because a police officer's life is not in danger in those moments. Because here's something that might be at play that we don't talk about enough. And this is on a deeper level, right? But part of what racism is, is, you know, the, the, un, the unknowing, the unfamiliarity, the differences in culture, the, the awkwardness, if you will, um, that white people feel when they're around black people, that lack of understanding, that, that othering that they feel. So there, that simple undercurrent of this person looks different, depending on the context of the life of the officer who's holding the weapon, that little bit of extra fear, that little bit of uncertainty that they may not even be, you know, conscious of, that they might not even process, you know, on a conscious level, that could be enough to make them pull the trigger. That is what systemic racism does. And when that systemic racism exists inside of our law enforcement agencies and our law enforcement agents, that's a problem. That's why systemic racism needs to be addressed. That's why we need to talk about racism openly as a nation, because that little bit of uncertainty and fear could be the line between whether or not you pull the trigger. And that is important. That is vitally important, and we need to address it, and we need people to be aware of it, especially if their finger is on the trigger of a gun. Now, the other side of it, the other side of it is just kind of the ignorance, and and I, I don't want to get myself in trouble here because, you know, I am a vet, but I feel like Americans elevate the police and the military. Some Americans elevate the police and the military. It's one thing to be grateful for their service. It's another thing to put them on a pedestal to the point of near worship. Kind of like we've seen with the Constitution where it's untouchable and it's almost, it's as glorious and untouchable as the Bible. You know, it's, it's that kind of law. It's weird and it's kind of gross. One of the principles that America was founded upon is that things can be changed. They can and should be changed. That's why we can amend the Constitution. Nothing should be untouchable. Okay? Cops are not untouchable. The military is not untouchable. The Constitution is not untouchable. There's this, like, hero culture that's out there. Police and military members shouldn't join for power or for glory or for accolades or for praise. Individual heroes do exist, but they are rare, especially in the regard that we think of heroes. And I don't think we should be blanketing any profession with that term. People in the military are heroes. Some, maybe. What did they do? Did they do something heroic on the battlefield? Did they do something heroic to help the lives of the people around them? Was there a level of self-sacrifice that's so rare and so profound that they deserve the title? Then yes, those people are heroes. Are all military members heroes? No. I joined the military and I am, I'm not a hero because I joined the Navy. Those distinctions need to be made. We need to be very, very careful about how we apply terms like hero because we cannot elevate professions in that way, because when it's time to come to hold them to account, 
For things that we do wrong, we cannot let those types of perceptions get, uh, get in the way of us doing the right thing. And that's what happens when we elevate things like that. So we need to be careful. Um, we, we need to be careful. So, so that, those are my thoughts on the shooting and kind of, and kind of the fallout from it. And, and again, I think we need to think about how we value human life as a country. I think we need to value the way that we look at, you know, these police shootings. I think we need to do more to acknowledge what systemic racism is because, again, that, that, that unknowing, that fear, that uncertainty that exists when a white person sees a black person that they don't feel when they see a white person, that's systemic racism, consciously or not. And if that is the difference between pulling the trigger or not, that needs to be put on the table. And we all need to look it in the face. Okay? So... There it is. Last week, I talked about the Democrats passing some law enforcement reform measures or putting them on the table in the House. This week, Donald Trump came out with an executive order, and there wasn't much there. Um, it echoed some of the Democratic bill in creating a federal police database for, you know, when, when weapons are fired and things along those lines, uh, but also for misconduct. It established accreditation guidelines, and part of that is the ban on chokeholds. But aside from those things, um, in some vague language, it's very vague language about community outreach. There's nothing transformative about this executive order. However, when Donald Trump put out the executive order, he made these comments. Americans want law and order. They demand law and order. They may not say it. They may not be talking about it, but that's what they want. Some of them don't even know that's what they want, but that's what they want. And they understand that when you remove the police, you hurt those who have the least, the most. So what about when the people who have the least are being killed by the police? How does removing the entity that routinely murders people without justification, how does removing that hurt those people who are being murdered by them? I would be very interested to know what the logic is there. But as with Donald Trump, you know, typically there is no line of logic. Do Americans want law and order? Not specifically. Americans want peace in their streets. They want law to be enforced and they want justice and they want the same standard to be applied to all people, regardless of race, color, religion, creed, you know, sexual orientation. They want equality. They want equality. And what people want is what they're out in the streets demanding. They want equality for black people in this country. They want criminal justice reform. And, and they know they want it. And that's why people are marching by the thousands to get that point across. So I said last week that Donald Trump has said and done so many things over his presidency that you, you just, you forget. You forget so many of them because they're, they're like this. They're these small, tone-deaf moments that never address the issue. They never address the actual issue. They, they, it runs this like weird middle where it's like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a line in there for my base and then I'm going to like just run this right up the middle and I'm not going to say that I don't disagree with everything that's going on, but I'm also not going to say that I support it and I'm going to tell people what they should think because Donald Trump has done that from the start and let me tell you, it has worked. Donald Trump tells people what to think and they think it. They do with blind conviction. It's unbelievable. It doesn't matter what he says. Through all of this, there is that contingent of people who will, they just eat up everything he says because he tells him what they believe and they're like, all right, he said it. 
and he is my leader. So I am going to follow his word without question. And that's another problem we'll get into in another episode, but it's tone deaf, okay? When you are elected the president of the United States, you are everybody's president. And no president before this one has made it so abundantly clear that he does not give a crap about people who do not vote for him abundantly clear. So when people are protesting in the streets, when lives are being lost, when we now have what looks like a series of hate crimes and murders being carried out across the country against black people now, we don't have a leader who's willing to address it and condemn it. And that's unbelievable. Unbelievable. So not okay. So Back to his executive order, just to get back to where, you know, the content is. Not much here that the Democrats didn't spell out, and and otherwise, nothing. I mean, but the Senate also put forth a reform bill under the Republicans called the Justice Act. This puts more emphasis on the states passing laws rather than establishing national standards. No ban on chokeholds. No ban on no-knock warrants in drug cases. Uh, Does not make lynching a federal crime, but adds language addressing the history of lynching in the United States. How very noble. This country needs to take accountability as a nation for the wrongs it has committed. This is not up to the states. This is up to the United States as a country. The injustice it has doled out and the inequality and oppression it has perpetuated needs to be addressed nationally. This is not, oh, well, some states can do it if they want and some states can't. No, this is a national issue. This is something that affects Everyone in this nation, we've seen protests in all 50 states. This is something that we need federal standards on right now. Republicans need to stop picking and choosing which battles they want to fight and which they want to dole off to the states. This is a national issue. We need federal law on this, okay? It is not something we can allow states to do because in not taking action and not taking responsibility, you are allowing for the perpetuation of this type of behavior to continue indefinitely. So... We need national we need national laws on this, and I feel very strongly on that. So, covered the shooting, uh, covered Trump's executive order, my take on things, and I know I get very passionate about these things. So, you know, if there's any follow-up, if there's anything I've missed, if there's anything I've misstated, please let me know, and I will do my best to correct it. Um, but we're going to move on to some slightly lighter conversations to uh, wrap up today's, uh, this week's episode, I should say. So, In 2009, the state of Rhode Island took a vote as a state on whether or not we should shorten our name because, and many people outside of Rhode Island probably don't know this, but Rhode Island, the smallest state, has the longest name. The official state name is the state of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. So let me give you, well, anyway, so in 2009, we had a referendum and it was voted down. They did not want to change the name. Okay. So let me give you some history on the name. Prior to white settlers coming over, um, as we know it, you know, the, the, the pilgrims up in Massachusetts. Giovanni de Verrazzano um, arrived here uh, in the area in approximately 1525. He was looking for, um, I believe, some, some trade routes. He ended up in North Carolina to conduct ship repairs. And rather than going south, which was his original plan, he, he sailed up here. He sailed up north. And he sailed into Narragansett Bay the predominant body of water uh, in the state of Rhode Island. And he saw a triangle-shaped island in the vicinity of of the state. And he said it reminded him of the Isle of Rhodes. So that's where the Rhode Island comes from. There's some speculation as to whether or not he saw Aquidneck Island, which which is 
actually in the bay, or Block Island, which is out in, in the sound between New York and Rhode Island. We're not quite sure what he saw, but either way, it stuck um, Rhode Island. But then we get to Roger Williams. So Roger Williams, the state founder, he arrived here in the winter of 1635, and he arrived in what is now Providence, the capital. And he named that area Providence Plantation, uh, much like the Pilgrims had named Plymouth Colony Plymouth Plantation. In 1637, um, a colony was formed on Aquithnic Island, as the Wampanoag natives called it here, but we now call it Aquidnic Island. Um, but the colonists in, in Roger Williams decided to call it Rhode Island, as Verrazano had described it. So you have Providence Plantations and um, Aquidnic or Rhode Island. So in 1663... The colony was chartered as the Colony of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations under King Charles II. Um, So as I've kind of alluded to here, plantation as a term has two meanings. It was used as the name of settlement, like Plymouth Plantation, like Providence Plantation, or as an agricultural estate, as we know it from Southern history and from the years of slavery in America, that slaves worked on plantations. Which brings me to my point. In America, the term is largely synonymous with the slave era, okay? Yes. Was Plymouth Plantation named Plantation because of slaves on it? No. Same thing with Providence Plantation. But but the term in America, culturally, overwhelmingly, it's synonymous with the slave era, and it's taken on a negative connotation. So is there any harm in removing it? I wonder. So this has come back up in state politics. From the Providence Journal, The lone black man in the Rhode Island Senate has renewed the push to remove Providence Plantations from Rhode Island's official name, and he has the Senate leadership's backing. Senator Harold Metz, a Providence Democrat, introduced legislation on Wednesday to give voters another chance to change the state constitution to eliminate a word from the state name that many black Rhode Islanders find offensive. Quote, Whatever the meaning of the term plantations... In the context of Rhode Island's history, it carries a horrific connotation when considering the tragic and racist history of our nation, said Mr. Metz in a statement on Wednesday night. The images that come to mind when I hear the word plantations are of the inhuman and degrading treatment of the African Americans who came before me, families ripped apart by slave sales, rapes, and lynchings. It is a hurtful term to so many of us. And before a lot of Rhode Islanders out there say, well, you know, but we didn't have slavery up here. Yes, we did. We were huge in the slave trade. My hometown of Bristol, Rhode Island has buildings in it that still have the chains in the basement. We imported slaves into the state. We are not innocent in that. So even though the Providence Plantation, as we know historically, is not in terms of slavery, it's not like we did not commit atrocities here in Rhode Island, okay? So we can't claim innocence on this either. So also literally... No one uses the full state name. No one is like, I'm from the state of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. Where are you from? Oh, I'm from Texas. You know, that that conversation doesn't happen. It, it doesn't. Um, further, Providence Plantations no longer exists. It is now the city of Providence. Just like no one calls Aquidneck Island, Rhode Island. People say, I'm going to Newport. I'm going to Portsmouth. Some people say, I'm going to the island. And some even rare people say Aquidneck Island. But... Nobody says Rhode Island. No one's like, oh, I'm going to Rhode Island this weekend because that would confuse the crap out of people because they just assume you're coming to the state. And if you were already in the state, they'd be like, you're, you're already here, man. Like, you don't need to say it. We know where you are. Like, it's that rare that it would cause confusion. And there's no reason not to change the name. Clearly, it is offensive to, you know, black people in this country. And I can understand why because, you know, I had like fourth grade history. Um... 
but there's no reason not to change the name. No one calls it the State of Rhode Island Providence Plantations. It's like when Dunkin' Donuts changed their official name to Dunkin'. No one said Dunkin'. No one said, I'm going to Dunkin' Donuts. They said, oh, I'm going to go up the road to Dunkin'. I'm going to go grab a coffee. Like, it makes no difference. The name changed and no one cared. Nobody cares. Like, some people pretend to care because they need something to be upset about in the moment. And I get it. Like, life is boring for some people. But, like, in this instance, it's like, no one calls it the State of Rhode Island Providence Plantation. So I think it's funny. I will. I would be voting to change the name because, you know, it, it it makes sense to, and we can save some ink on that very long lane name when, you know, we're printing birth certificates. You know, good for our strained budget, especially after COVID. A term has been coming up a lot over the last twenty four hours. Um, uh, virtue signaling and. Uh, from dictionary.com, it's a sharing of one's point of view on a social or political issue, often on social media, in order to garner praise or acknowledgement for one's righteousness from others who share the point of view, or to passively rebuke those who do not. Um, so basically, hey, I'm saying this because I want to look like I care. Look how much I care about this thing that everyone cares about. Changing the state name is not virtue signaling. Um, and, and I know that some people have alluded to that, but when someone has an issue... When someone is hurting, we need to see two things. The first thing is that those people need to be heard and they need to be validated. And the second thing is they need to see action and results in relation to how they're feeling. Things like changing the state name, things like making Juneteenth a holiday, while they don't have an immediate impact on the problem, those things are acknowledgement. They're saying, we hear you. Action might be slow. We're working on it. We're writing legislation. The change needs to happen. But the things we can do up front here, we understand our state name has an offensive term in it that is divisive among some people. And because there's really no real attachment to it, we have no issue getting rid of it. No issue. Because we understand it makes people uncomfortable. And Juneteenth, that is an important day in American history, especially for the black community. We feel it should be celebrated. So we feel like, you know, our state is going to make that a paid holiday or the nation's going to make that a federal holiday. That is acknowledgement and validation of the issues. And then it needs to go further. We need to see the legislation. And then we need to see legislation passed and turned into action. And then we need to see the actionable reform. But we cannot just say, well, yeah, we shouldn't change the state name because it's just, you know, people, you know, virtue signaling. No, it's acknowledgement of a problem and acknowledging that, yes, even things like that that are offensive, those can be changed as well. We can attack this problem top to bottom all at once. That's part of it. I do not believe it is a vain action. I believe it means something. The fact that the only black senator is the one who introduced this legislation, I believe is testament to the fact that like, this is an issue that black people care about. We should hear them on it and not make little of it. So that's my, my stance there. And finally, I'm overly excited to talk about this. So in Florida, of course, Florida, right? Um, genetically engineered mosquitoes have recently received... EPA approval for Florida release. So literally, like, the EPA is like, yes, you can release these genetically modified mosquitoes into the environment. The idea is that, so these genetically modified mosquitoes only produce female offspring. And the females are the ones that bite you and, the, and they need the nutrients from your blood to, you know, raise their young. Um, so these mosquitoes only produce the female biting offspring, but they will die in the larval state. So none of the biting mosquitoes will grow up to be nuisances. They will just die, you know, where they should, one might argue. And so the state is going to release them out. 
And this should, you know, give some population control and help prevent diseases. But we're about to live in a world, we probably already live in a world where there's like genetically modified stuff out there. Bumblebees, they, I'm pretty sure they've got cameras on them. They, they look great for drones. Sometimes they just hover there and it's like someone in that bee is looking at me. To make, any, anyway, the mosquitoes, we're about to live in a world where you have genetically modified insects and like maybe it's Jurassic Park, but like what are the consequences? What if the genetically modified mosquito five years down the road like goes down a different evolutionary path and like mutates real quick and all of a sudden not only do the female larvae like come alive but they grow to be seven inches in length and they can like carry small children and cats away never to be seen again that could be a movie or a reality i mean who knows but anyway florida's gonna do this to us florida is about to either reduce their mosquito population or cause future horrific issues. Um, although, you know, in Florida, you know, probably won't rank very high if that, that should be the case. It is the state of bath salts. So genetically modified mosquitoes coming to a place near you. I'm mildly intrigued to say. So um, fun to think about. Finally, um, I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. Huge, huge, huge. Anyone who knows me knows that I absolutely love the Lord of the Rings. I care deeply about that movie and all the relationships in it and everything else. And, and I've watched it so many times and my fiance hated it. And I made her watch the extended versions. And she, I told her that after the fact that they were extended and she was not happy about that. She was not happy at all, but there's no other way to watch them. You guys know what I'm talking about. So Ian Holm, who played Bilbo Baggins in the Lord of the Rings movies, passed away at age 88 after a, a battle with Parkinson's disease. And uh, I just wanted to make note of that here because I appreciated his performance as Bilbo in a story and a film that has had deep and lasting impacts on my life. So uh, rest in peace, Sir Ian Holm. That is all I have for you guys today, uh, this week rather, on the New Deal. You'll be able to find links and resources to the, you know, what I'm working off here linked on the podcast below. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Please like and share the podcast. Let your friends know about it if you enjoyed it. Or if you hated it, say, hey, I hated this, but like maybe you like it because you're a raging liberal, right? So share it with your friends. Um, I would definitely appreciate it. Check out thenewdeal.com for some of the articles posted there. I hope everyone has an absolutely uh, great week between now and the next episode, and I will see you or talk to you through this digital format then. Thanks again for listening.